Psalm 17. We're going to just read through it, and then we'll come back and do a few word studies and see what the Lord has for us. A prayer with confidence in final salvation is what it says. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. And let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart, and you've visited me in the night, and you've tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress concerning the works of men by the word of your lips. I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your path, that my footsteps footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me, and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye, and hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me from the deadly enemies who surround me. They've closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. Now they've surrounded us in our steps. They've set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey, and like a young lion lurking in the secret places. But arise, O Lord, confront him and cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose bellies you filled with your hidden treasure, and they're satisfied with children, and leave the rest of their possessions to their babes. But as for me, I will seek your face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Amen. So David says a prayer of David. Uh, David prays to God. The, the word here is in order to hear, in order to do something about it. It's not just, you know, listen up and all. It's, it's, Lord, I want you to hear so that you can do something about it. And it's a just cause. He wants justice. He wants a righteous judgment. Um, and when he says, attend to my cry, it's be attentive and listen to the, like the ringing of an ongoing crying out, that entreaty and that supplication. And he says, give ear again. Listen to my prayer. And that word prayer is the first time that particular word for prayer is used in the entire Bible. Uh, historically speaking, uh, when it comes to turning back, we'll go back to first Sam, or Second Samuel here in a minute to its first, but that is the first time that that particular word for prayer is used. And it has to do with that hearing in order to do something about it. Hear so that, that you can act. And uh, not just so that you can, I can get something off my chest or so I can hear my own voice, but that, Lord, you do something because of this. And if you want, let's go to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. And this is the first time, or I should say the second time, David likely wrote Psalm 17 prior to this, but it's possible it's after, so we don't know for sure. But it lends a little bit of a, a meaning to that word prayer. For us. Back to 2 Samuel 7, and we're going to do 18 through 29, but uh, this is when God had made his covenant with David. Prior to this, uh, the ark was not in Jerusalem. It had just been uh, returning back from the 
being captive in, with the Philistines and that whole story, if you're not familiar, is, is a, a great story to, to read through if you want to start in Second Samuel chapters prior to that. But the ark is being brought back now, the ark of the Lord, back to Jerusalem. And uh, David is, is glad and rejoices and dances at that. Um, but now in chapter 7, David wants to build the Lord a house. He has his own house. He's built a house. The ark is now in Jerusalem. And it's been in the tabernacle again, still with the tents and, and all the workings with the tabernacle that was carried through the, through the desert. And uh, but the Lord or uh, David wants to build a house for the Lord, and that's the context of chapter seven. And Nathan says, "Do what you want, you know, if it's Lord's put it on your heart to do that." But then overnight, the Lord came to Nathan and says, "No, we got to uh, we got to back off on that." And he tells David that because you're a man of war, you know, uh, there's blood on your hands. Um, I will pass this on to your son Solomon. He can build it. David already had materials coming from Tyre and all around, and, and he had uh, been uh, making preparations. Who knows, I think, if he did any design work or how he wanted to do that, but he was providing for it already. But it was going to be Solomon that would be the one to build it. But the Lord says, you know what, David? You desired to build me a house. What I'm going to do for you is establish your throne. And so if we pick it up in uh, 18 through 29... I guess backing up really to 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And down in 16 it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Before you, your throne shall be established forever. And then skipping down to uh, 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this is a small thing in your sight, O Lord, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of men, or of a man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you, for you, Lord, know your servant? For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. And there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. You, according to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make himself a name, to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed, for yourself from Egypt and the nation of their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, or, now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said, and let your name be magnified forever. The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer, and that's the word, to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. You have promised this goodness to your servant. And now, therefore, let it please you to bless the name of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. 
For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be forever. The, why I, the reason I go there to, to recite this is because that word prayer has to do with in a response to, and the same as it is in Psalm 17, it's a response to what God has already done and established. And here's David saying, you know, Lord, I, you've done this thing. Uh, you've done great things in my life. And David's fully aware of it, and that's part of Psalm 17. And uh, as it turns out, the same word again is used for prayer. And, you know, there's many words for prayer, but this one has to do with that context of because of what God has done. And again, for, for him to hear and, re, and, and act because of how well David knows God and his response. Going to 1 Kings 8, where Solomon also then uses the same word again, and it's, it's just a rare word for the word prayer having this connotation to it. 22 through 30, when uh, Solomon did build the temple and the ark was brought into the temple. And then Solomon prayed and he first brought the ark into the temple. They offered the sacrifices. And Solomon made a speech to all the congregation. And then he prays in 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you in all their hearts, with all of their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father, and you've both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, Now keep what you have promised your servant, David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. And if only your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, there it is, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant, um, David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open towards this temple night and day, and toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, and you may hear the supplications of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray towards this place here in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. This is parallels with what David's saying in Psalm 17. It goes on uh, the same account of the story. If you want, I can read it or you can flip there. Uh, there's a little bit more in Second Chronicles, the exact same story when Dal- uh, Solomon dedicates the t- temple. But in uh, chapter 7, verse 12 through 15, he says, Well, then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house for sacrifice, a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, there's that word, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. And now my eyes are open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. 
So the idea here is, again, the Lord has made the covenant. The Lord has done the work. The Lord established. And he has promised to keep his word. He hears, just like David is praying, in order to do something. Because it's a just cause. A righteous judgment in Psalm 17. He's talking. Uh, a ringing cry. He's, he's continuing to cry out to the Lord. And ask him to hear and give ear. And, um, you know, when God responded to Solomon, he repeated that same word for prayer. Because he's going to keep his word based on what he's done. Uh, you know, we change when God reveals something to our hearts. When he, when he does something in our lives that, like he did with David, all the ways that David was, was saved out of trouble and the Lord was with him and David cried out to the Lord and David, uh, you know, just set his heart towards the Lord. And the Bible says that uh, David had a heart after the Lord and there was none like him that had that. And yet, uh, you know, he says that, and it's the same for us, when we, when, when we change, or I should say we change, when God reveals to our hearts and minds what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And now we know him, and the way we think about him and talk to him is not some religion, it's not some liturgical way just to hear our own voices repeat something over and over, vain repetitions, or trying to appease some obligation, requirement that we've either made up in our own minds or that other people lay down on us. That's not what we're doing now. We seek the Lord. We pray because of something he did in us that only he could do in us. And so we seek him and we pray to him. And it's not religion. It's a relationship. And so that's where David's at. He's, he's crying out to the Lord. We're, we're God's children, just like David was. Now he's given us his Holy Spirit. And we cry out to our Father, you know, like, like they do to this day in Jerusalem. Abba, Father. It's funny if you ever watch the... The videos, uh, there's one that we like to watch. It's called Relaxing, what's it called? Um, Relaxing Walker, I think, or something like Relaxing Walking. It's a, if you want to go on YouTube and check it out, it's a guy who just no talking or anything except what's going on about him. And he just walks through the old city, walks through Tel Aviv, walks all over Israel. And every once in a while you hear some little kid, Abba, Abba, coming you know, down the, the street looking for his or her, little, her, his or her dad. And the uh, same way that we are, we're children of God. We cry out to God, our Father, not some religious, not some faraway, distant thing. We've been brought near in Christ Jesus. And now our hearts burn within us because his word is alive in us. It's, it's like our kids, when we teach them to pray, they're doing it in front of us because we taught them how to, you know, and so they're saying, yeah, I'll do it just like mom and dad said. But there comes a time when they meet the Lord for themselves and they see what the Lord has done in their lives for themselves. And now they have a new father. You know, we're still maybe their fathers in this life, but truly they belong to him and, and they've given their lives to him as they respond to him and, and they have a new father. And, um, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Every single one of their, our kids, and just like we had to, we come to the Lord on our own and once we do, we have a new father. And uh, we're his kid because, you know, when we're standing before the Lord, our mom and dad aren't going to be standing there saying, yeah, he was a good little boy. They won't be saying that. <laughs> uh, but they won't be there. We stand with the Lord and, and, uh, on our own, and, and we call him Father, Abba Father.
So it becomes a prayer, a conversation, a waiting for response, a love relationship. And David goes on to talk about it. It's our walk. But let, uh, let's look at First um, Peter 3, 8 through 12. It's a cry to God and a prayer. But he says, not from deceitful lips, in verse 1. Not from deceitful lips and with guile or crafty and false, talks about. We've laid that all aside. And so how we come to the Lord is a little different than what it might be. In verses, uh, in chapter 3, 8 through 12, it says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love us as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit with a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Notice it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, we we put away these things. We get saved, we turn, we repent. Not that we're perfect. And, uh, but he, we want to pray from an attitude and from a heart of repentance and from turning towards the Lord and turning away from dead works. And uh, part of this is interesting. What Peter's talking about is it has a lot to do with fellowship of the brethren, having one mind, having compassion for one another, you know, practicing those things. I mean, if, if we're sitting here beating up on each other and we go to the Lord saying, Lord, please bless me. I've got, you know, I've got to have a loan for this car and please help me with this. And it's like when you're, when two kids come to their dad in the, in the real world and they're misbehaving and not treating each other the way they're supposed to treat each other, dad wants to give them, you know, something. Well, let's straighten out your, your business here first, you know, and, and that's what's going on. We need to, to work with how you're treating one another. And so Peter's talking about that. In, uh, in this chapter. Um, we're all different. We all pray in different ways. I like to say there's as many stories as there are human beings and every single one of them is different. And yet the word of God applies to every single one of them the same. And that's the miracle of his word and how he is God and orchestrates all of our lives. We were, I was talking to somebody last week about how incredibly miraculous it is that he weaves all of our lives, all of our free wills, all of the circumstances in our lives together and brings us together, brings other fellowships together, and we're able to minister to one another and meet the needs of one another. And um, even just in, as the Lord brings a couple together in a marriage, all the different aspects of their lives and comings and goings and travels and, or just where they grew up and where they went and ended up meeting, and then the Lord brings them together, and they're one. And he knew that before the foundation of the world. It's just miraculous how the Lord can do these things. And so it's amazing. But we all pray in our own way. You know, some with the hands up and the head up, and some with the head bowed and the hands folded, and some on the knees and some on the feet. And um, there's no right or wrong way, per se, when it comes to your individual, how you would seek the Lord. But Jesus teaches us how to pray, knowing our hearts. If you want to go to Matthew chapter 5, and we kind of just pick a few verses about prayer out of the Sermon on the Mount and starting with who he's talking to and and 
how he addresses uh, his listeners, blessing them. Each one he knows, knowing all their hearts. And he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for this, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's his listeners he's talking to. And he's blessing them. And they know that he knows their hearts as he goes through this. But if you go down to... Uh, verses 23 and 24 he's talking about if you're going to come before the Lord with an offering and he says therefore if you bring your gift to an altar to the altar and and there remember your brother has something against you well leave your gift there for a minute and before all all the altar and uh, go your way First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so the idea is, you know, there's a therefore because, you know, he's talking about guys that hate each other. And he's saying, you know, hatred is murder. You know, if you had the chance, if there was no restraints to your hatred, basically you'd take the guy out. That's what hatred is. And people don't realize that. They're so quick to say, oh, I hate that guy or hate that gal. And they're literally saying that they would kill them if they had the chance. And so don't be flippant about that. But realize that if that's truly brewing in your heart, you know, or if you even know that there's somebody out there that hates you who is a brother in the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Before you go before the Lord, before you bring your gift, and what is our gift to the Lord? Well, our obedience and also our thanksgiving and our prayers. Um, And so before you do that, you know, and you know that there's something going on, there's some agita between you and another uh, brother or sister in the Lord, make it right. That's all he's saying. If you're praying, maybe you need to do something before you can settle into prayer. You know, and if there's not an opportunity, that doesn't mean you can't pray until you get the opportunity. Just be looking for the opportunity. Because clearly we need to come before the Lord and seek him for everything, even to be able to find a way back to that person if necessary. And so it's not like uh, there's some rule now that you cannot pray because you know somebody out there has got something against you. Just take care of it, is what he's saying. And understand the heart of the Lord. Before you bring your offering, it says, in verses 43 and 45, talking about our enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and good, and send rain, sends rain on the just and the unjust. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Well, that'll be an interesting night tonight when you get home. Because how many of us have people that are spitefully using us? If not directly from uh, across the street or next door neighbor or at work or in, even in our own families? You know, 
we've got society right now that is taking every opportunity to make fools out of Christians. We know our God. We know that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to him and that his wisdom is far and above all that. His foolishness is way beyond their wisdom, it says, you know. So pray for those who spitefully use you. And it does a lot more in our heart than it may do in theirs. But, you know, he'll answer that prayer too and hear your prayer for them. But what's really going on is what's happening in your heart when you do that, right? So six, chapter 6, verses 5 through 18. Um, the Lord has more instruction for us about prayer. It says, And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the the things that you have need before you ask him. And then he goes on to give us the prayer that most people repeat in vain more than just about any other prayer in the world, right? I mean, who can't, re- who can't recite this by, by rote um, unless you never grew up in any kind of a, a church upbringing or anything like that? And I don't have the time to take this little uh, passage of Scripture or this prayer that is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer apart, but just to read through it and take it every bit of it for its full meaning and, and take it to heart. First of all, our Father, and also verse 9, the beginning, it says, in this manner, pray. It doesn't say word for word. So these are things that you find in your heart and you lift up in your life any given time. It might be one, it might be the other, it might be a few, it might be most. But to say that you repeat this prayer as some type of a, a rubbing the lamp kind of potion to get something from the Lord, you don't want to you know, let it turn into that. But our Father, again, Abba, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and coming before the Lord with holiness, coming before the Lord, giving him all the glory and the honor, because he's hallowed. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth and in heaven, as it is in heaven. Give us this day. By the way, be careful, because these days, they change words. And you, you might hear this and have seen this Bible. It'll say, as above so below, when they talk about, you know, as it is in, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's a new age statement. That's basically saying, you know, we're going to bring this all under this realm of, of, a, of a new age and of a, of a trying to conjure and say things are above and they're below, but they're not heaven where God dwells and dwells in holiness and earth in this created planet where we who are created creatures they want to encompass the whole thing so be careful when you hear this prayer some of you saying as above so below that's not what it's saying it's saying no in heaven as it is on earth and give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts thankfulness and praise for him providing for us and also forgiving our debts as we forgive our debtors and there's a there's a proverb about a man who was forgiven 20 bucks, and he goes out and finds a guy, or I should say 20,000 bucks, goes out and find a guy, finds a guy who owes him five bucks and takes the guy to court and throws him in jail just to get his five bucks when he just got forgiven $20,000 by the Lord. And he uses that example. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, when you pray that the Lord takes away your debt, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you're sitting there hanging on to something and you think somebody else owes you. What's going on in your heart? And so, uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And um, on to 18. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, well, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a scary thought. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with the sad countenance, and for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father, who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. You know, it's a big sigh. It's a big rest. It's a big comfort. It's a big peace that you get when you quit worrying about what other people think. And I'm the worst at it. I'll confess, I'm the worst at thinking about you know, what's that guy going to think? And I don't want to misrepresent the Lord, so I'm careful that I don't, you know, misrepresent the Lord in front of anybody. So I care that way about what somebody might see or think. But when it comes to worrying about whether somebody sees how I pray or whether or not I'm fasting or whether or not that I've, I've uh, gone before the Lord on this or that or the other thing, my heart is, is my heart. And I can't know what everybody thinks about me. Or I can't think anything about you. I don't know what you've been through, what your life is. And sure, we get to know each other and we get to see uh, how the Lord works in each other's life and we glorify him for that. But the idea here is there's a whole lot of give upness. <laughs> there's a whole lot of just letting go when you stop worrying about doing things in front of other people and you just do them as unto the Lord. So... Um, In uh, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 of uh, Matthew, Ask, and it will be given you, and seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Simple common sense, isn't it? To, to know that all we need to do is ask the Lord God Almighty who made heaven and earth, holds together our cells, allows our heart to beat and gives us breath in our lungs, has all these things going on, counts the numbers of hair on our head. How much is he going to be taking care of us if we ask him? In the context of this, uh, is often uh, is in another place scripture wise there's a context of the Holy Spirit. If we ask for the Holy Spirit, is he going to give us something else? Well, no, he desires more than anything else that that we dwell in his holy Spirit his spirit dwells in us, and so ask all we have to do is ask so many times we want to figure out what works we have to do or what money we got to pay or what chores we got to do i don 't know. We're weird that way. We just find out that before we can come back to, or we think that before we can come back to the Lord, we've got to do something first because there's no way he's going to listen to me until I straighten something out. Well, the truth is, you know, all we have to do is ask, and he'll straighten us out, right? There's grace. 
So settle with your brother, you know, like your kid coming to you for something when they need it. You know, treat, you know, they're not treating others the way they should. Um, Jesus talks about others that have a religious type of prayer. It's got to be public. They've got to be seen. They've got to be heard. It's for their own recognition, for gains, for lofty positions in the church. That Jesus talked about the Pharisees who loved the chief seats in the synagogue. And, uh, you know, that's what he's talking about. But he says to us to pray to the Father in secret, and the reward will be public, to ask by faith, knowing he loves us and he would not give bad things to his children. And we can come boldly before that throne of grace. If you want to go to 1 John chapter 5, we're going to do verses 1 through 5 and 14 and 15. And the 14 and 15 where it comes into play. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him, who is begotten of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And, it is, and who, is, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now going down to 14. See, this is the confidence that we have in him now. We believe that he is the Son. That's our simple part, to simply believe. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, well, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. You know, there's a condition, asking according to his will. You know, if, if we gave our toddler everything they wanted, they'd kill themselves. You know, they'd burn their hands on the stove. They would run outside and get hit by a truck. You can't give your toddler everything they want. Same way you can't, the Lord's not going to give us every single thing we want. Some people, the Lord is blessed with wealth. Some people, Lord, you know, if that would cause them to lose their, you know, their faith. They would be drawn away. Uh, the example might be Solomon. We heard Solomon's prayer, but by the end of Solomon's life, he, he had thousand, you know, 700 wives or 300 wives, 700 concubines. He had horses. He wasn't supposed to have horses. But before his life is over, he's sacrificing to Baal on some mountain in Israel. You know, the Lord, you know, gave him wisdom, but I don't know what happened to it. Um, it's, it and it's really kind of sad, but the, my point being is that some, the Lord can't give you every single thing you ask for. So he says, ask according to his will. Not because there's some kind of, you know, thing you have to you know, necessarily follow to make it work, but something that you would know that, that he's asking you to do or to have. Ask him for the ability to do it. Ask him for the, 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 the ability to handle that thing he's given you and all. So in First John, we go there, Philippians, a couple pages back or so. Philippians uh, 4. 6 and 7, just real quick, just two quick verses. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the idea now is kind of like what I was talking about before. You know, you don't need to be anxious if you're, if you're trying to do something in front of men. 
you know, t- people get to be nervous and they're trying to hurry and impatient and things and they start to get anxious about what's coming into their lives. And also people get anxious because of circumstances. Maybe they got some health issues and some major stuff coming down the pike. You know, and, if, and you know, it's real easy to get anxious. I know that. And, and it's, the Lord's simply asking us, be anxious for nothing and telling us it's really what he's expecting of us to stop being anxious but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your, your request be made known to God. What's the result? Well, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. It doesn't even make sense to our minds how good we feel about the circumstance that's coming down the pike. It's a, a peace that passes understanding. And uh, it's going to guard your hearts and minds through Christ. And that brings us back to David. Because David's got troubles on his hearts, on his heart, and on his mind, like we often have on our hearts and our minds. David's looking for a vindication. He's looking for a sentencing, is what it means. He's, you know, concerning his cause, a judgment, um, a justice, as in a decision, in a trial case, is what that word is. Let my vindication. Let's look at verse 2 then, yes. Let my vindication come from your presence and let your eyes look on the things that are upright. So the world looks to men and the institutions of men and, and for justice, the courts, the, the politicians, you know, what even nowadays social justice types, but, you know, we're looking for true justice that can only come, you know, from the presence, David says here. Let it come from your presence. It can only come from the throne of God, the kind of justice that David is looking for. And you know, we, we can find a lot of peace and rest in that as well. Because if we start looking for justice for something we think we need justice for, well, God knows the whole story. God knows everything about what took place, what led up to that. And he knows how to bring justice to a situation. And so a lot of times with patience and trusting him, things just work their, work their way out, work themselves out. And so he's looking for that kind of justice that can only come from the presence of God, the perfect judge who shows no partiality between you and whoever you're looking for justice from. You know? And he is no respecter of persons. We know that from, from James. And whose eyes are on the upright things and sees those that are tried and purified in him. And so God will bring justice. And look at how David is saying, you know, you know your, your eyes look on all these things. You see the upright things. And David wants that justice. He wants that decision. He wants deliverance by God's hand and his circumstance and by God's sword. And he also says against his enemies. Now, he can do this. Like we said, David's got a history with the Lord. He's been uh, walking with the Lord. He's seen the Lord's hand in his life in many ways. In verse 3, David knows that God has been in his life trying and testing his heart. He can say, you've tested my heart. You've visited me on the night in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. And concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. And he's asking, but Lord, uphold my steps, in verse 5, in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. You know, David's not being self-righteous here. You know, he's not saying, you know, I've done all this for myself. He's saying it's your word that's done this. It's that you've tried me, you've tested me, you've worked in my life, and uh, you're, you've, even in the night, I, I'm getting older, I don't sleep 
necessarily as much as I used to when I you know work construction. You put in eight, ten hours, good hard day. You go home and you sleep. You know after supper. These days, come one thirty-two in the morning, I'll go right up and I'll probably be up for two hours. And it's a neat time to spend with the Lord, but it's also a time where you're in and out of that kind of sleeping but not kind of sleeping, and you can toss and turn, and you can just have some churn in your mind that'll drive you crazy. Well, that's a trying and that's a testing. You know, it's it's something that the Lord does if you'll allow him to do it, to visit you in those times and in the night. And he will try you, and you'll grow by it. Get into the Word. If you can open your eyes enough to just turn on a dim light and take in a little scripture, you know, if nothing else, it helps you get back to sleep. But more than that, it feeds your spirit. And if you really seek him out, I find myself doing these word studies because I'm thinking, you know, I wonder what that word means. And I'll just be with the phone and, and looking up what these meanings are. And before you know it, you, you see things you never saw before. And, uh, and he says, he purposed with his mouth, or that my mouth shall not transgress. Well, that's a heavy statement because in James we find that if a man can tame the tongue, well, he's perfect and able to bridle his whole body. Well, first of all, the word perfect there, as we've said before, is mature. It doesn't mean a, a gleaming statue of perfection without a single mark in it. It means it's a mature believer, somebody who's come to that uh, completeness. And so able to bridle the whole body, well, none of us are without fault on any given day. None of us are blameless on any given day. But what he's saying here is, the Lord has tried me. Lord, I'm talking to you. I'm crying out to you. I'm praying. I'm standing before you. I've purposed to do these things the way I'm supposed to do them. Hear my cause. Hear my prayer. Vindicate me in all this stuff. And uh, he's going to go on and describe it a little bit. But Mark 7, if you want to quick take a gander at Mark 7, and verses uh, 14 through 23, talking about our tongues just a little bit. And obviously, James chapter 3 is, is a good place to start. Because who can tame the tongue, he says. If you can, you're, you're getting pretty mature. And I've seen saints, dear saints, that just have that gift. They're just waiting. I, I want to name names, but I don't want to take away the glory. But there's a, a brother of, a, of a, a pastor who founded Calvary Chapel. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, and his, his brother is still with us, although he's, he's getting up there. But ever since I've seen him, he'll listen a hundred times more than he'll speak. And he's just listening. And, and his words are filled with grace. And um, it's just a person that I would esteem to be anywhere close to uh, if, if Lord tarries and I get to be that old and all. But to be able to be a listener and not just running off all the time, just because things are quiet doesn't mean you've got to fill it with words. Sometimes some things can just be quiet. Even though you're in the same car going down the street, maybe it can just be a time where people are thinking. If something comes up, hopefully it's full of grace. But Mark 7, it's not because of food. And Jesus talks about this. He's got these guys that are, are Pharisees that are coming after his disciples because they didn't wash their hands and they weren't eating right and, and the food and all wasn't right. And so they're following the prescribed laws but they add to it their own uh, human wisdom and their own deductions from what the Lord simply said and uh, they've turned it into a, just a religion and, and so the Lord addresses that and so in verse uh, 14 you know he says when he had called the multitude to himself 
He said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, including bacon. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he entered a house away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him you know, concerning this parable, you know, they got a little worried, right? So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not... Uh, you, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and passes through? And all foods are therefore purified. You keep on living. You keep on, it just sustains your body. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness. I like this one. An evil eye. What is that? Blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a man. And so what defiles? You know, our hearts. What comes out of our hearts? How do we fix that? We'll start putting the right stuff in our hearts. I mean, the less you're watching some movie you know you're not supposed to be watching and the more you're getting into the Word... Not that that's a religion, but don't expect to come out of your, your heart things that, that you don't put in there. You know, we study and we learn and we read the Word of God for primarily the reason that the Lord can bring it to mind to us when we're sharing with other people or when we have the need in our own lives, when we need to be reminded of something, when he wants to comfort us. You know, I'm sure he's more than capable to, to say something out loud in our hearts and minds. And the law is written on our hearts. The Bible says that. Nevertheless, when you get into the Word and you get to know your Lord, He then can bring to mind things at the appropriate time and uh, meet that need. And re- he, you know, then you represent Him correctly when you're talking with people because you bring up His Word. They can't argue with that. It's in the Bible. I'm not telling you a story that I made up. I'm telling you just what Jesus said. How can you argue with that? And so in, uh, that's what verse 4 then back in, in, in uh, Psalm 17 God's word leads right into it. So concerning the works of men, it says, By the word of your lips I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. You know, the word is a lamp unto our feet, the Bible says. So David's keeping himself from dis- you know, destructive paths. And we read many you know, stories where David had the opportunity to do the wrong thing. But what he starts quoting and what he starts bringing to mind is what the word says. And he refrains from doing that. When he dealt with Saul, when he dealt with uh, Absalom, when he dealt with uh, Nabal and uh, many others, you know, he remembered what the Lord said and brought that to bear on what was going on. And he says, walk in your paths, it says. And it's so important for us to realize that what we have until the Lord comes right now is a walk. It's not necessarily a sprint. It's a race. It's got a pace. Um, but uh, it's a walk. It's something that we are ongoing doing. It's not a, a weekly obligation to go to church or do some other religion or, or take some sacrament. Uh, that's not what's going on in our Christian lives. It's a walk that starts in the morning when we wake up. And if we were up in the middle of the night, like I said, or... Until, until we go back to sleep. It's a walk. Walking with the Lord, asking the Lord to uphold his steps. Now, 
one example that's interesting, the first place this shows up in Scripture is, well, first of all, is the Garden of Eden, because Adam walked with God, fellowshiped with him. But there's this character named Enoch. And Enoch walked with the Lord and lived about 500 years walking with the Lord. And then he just, you know, he was taken up. The Lord just took him to be with him. It's a picture of the rapture of the church. Doesn't say anything about him dying. Doesn't say anything about anybody burying him. He just went to be with the Lord. He, he, he was no more, it says. And so we read about that. What, what was it for a man on this earth to walk with God? What is it for us to walk with God? Psalm 26, if you want to go there, maybe get through a couple of Psalms here. Oh. And um, I'm just going to read through them kind of quickly here. Because there's two Psalms that just really shed light on what it means to walk with the Lord. Psalm 26 says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord, and I shall not slip. Will examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Kind of sounds like what 17 is about. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. That's what's before his eyes. That's how he can do these things. And I have walked in your truth, and I have not sat with the idolatrous mortals, nor have I gone with the hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord. So he's making sacrifice for his own sins as well. That I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving, and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house, and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, whose hands are a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregation, I will bless the Lord. Well, this psalm kind of makes me a little uncomfortable because I can't claim that I do all these things every day without fault. And so I have to go now to Psalm 32 the next page, and get some insight. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not, or yes, does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old though my, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. And I acknowledged my sin to you, and in my iniquity I have not hidden. And I have said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you, and in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall, come, they shall not come near him, and you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from the trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding and have to be harnessed with a bit and a bridle, and else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy, mercy shall surround him. And be glad in the Lord and rejoice all you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Romans 8 talks about walking with the Lord. It talks about walking after the Spirit. And what that word after is 
in accord with. Galatians 5 talks about walking in the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. But if you want to turn to Ephesians 2, and um, want to look at verses 1 through 10, this is for us, those of us that since the Lord has come and given his life for us on the cross, paid the price, he's made us alive. And we've got to walk in these things that he's prepared for us. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, whether you knew it or not, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, It's by grace that you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These are such rich verses. You just want to praise the Lord. We have such a bright future. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is a gift of God. Notice it's not of works lest anyone should boast. And here's why. Because we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a walk. It's a walk in the things that he's given us to walk in. We don't have to conjure something up. We don't have to start in the morning and think of something we got to do. Whatever he's put before our faces, you know, it's more likely going to be somebody in real life, not necessarily on TV, for giving money away to some organization. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, if, if it's a good organization. But uh, more importantly, it's not to be afraid to meet the needs of somebody who's right in front of your face, who's right next door, who's maybe in your family, maybe in your friends, maybe at work, or however the Lord brings it to you. Um, but uh, that's where he shows himself strong. And that's where he, beforehand, like I said earlier, he's the one that orchestrated all of our lives and put all these things together. You know, John, 1 John 1 says, walk in the light. Well, we don't want to be trying to get away with something. You know, if you're walking in the darkness, it's because there's something you're trying to hold back and keep for yourself, you know, some little sin, some little, you know, uh, vice, if you will, or whatever it is. Well, walk in the light. Everything's exposed before him. If you're walking with him, there's nothing you can hide. And you know that. You know you know it's true in your own hearts and, and you might be hiding it from everybody else. But like I said, who cares what we think? You know, it's the, it's the Lord and how, how you walk before him. In Second John 1, 4 through 6, the ultimate command he gave to that uh, uh, saintly woman there who was a godly woman who was, uh, he was writing to is to walk in love. That's the new commandment. Our walk is what David's talking about in 17. In verse 6, he's calling on a God who hears. Many put their trust in idols, like we talked about in the past. You know, Jeremiah talks about these guys. He'd see the tree, 
looks like a good tree to get done what I want to get done. Cut a bunch of it to firewood, cut a bunch of it to make something, and then take a little piece of it, carve a little idol out of it, and make that your God. He's going to meet all my needs. And like I said in the past, you know, if you've got to cart your God around on a little cart, then you've got a wrong God because how can he not get himself around and he's going to meet all your needs? And you've got to throw him in the trunk and take him where you've got to go. It doesn't work. And so put, you know, many put their trust in idols like that. And to be honest with you, idolatry takes more, most commonly takes the form of somebody who wants to make God into the image of what they can handle. Well, you know, I think God loves me and I can still live with my girlfriend and, and I can still smoke a little pot and I can still do a little, you know, this and that. And because, you know, God loves me. He's not going to damn me. He's God of love. Well, you've now created an idol because that's not God. And you've created an idol in the image of what you can handle and what you're comfortable with. Not the God of the Bible. You've now made up a God that you like. That's idolatry. So many put their trust in idols that can't see or hear or even help them. Gods made with their own hands from wood or metal or, you know, um, you know four-barrel. And uh, anyway, all that. For themselves and, you know, much less anybody else, you know, that could help them. Psalm 94 says, when God can hear, it says, he's the one that made the ear. Can he not hear you? And he's the one that formed the eye. Can't he not see? And so we know that God will, you know, hear us. And David's saying that in verse 6. And in verse 7, it says, Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you. And God saves those who trust in him. You know, it's by God's loving kindness, it says, that we know that he will save those that trust in him. What's our part? Well, to trust him, you know. Enter the opposition from those that rise up against, he says. When you put your trust in God, there's going to be those that are going to want to give you grief. They're going to rise up against you. And the list is not, not pretty how they're going to do that. You know, because we're shining a light on their lives. We're saying things to them that makes the God that they've created, the idol that they've created, of uh, invalid and makes them very uncomfortable they had this great god that was going on and helped them get away with whatever they wanted to get away with and now all of a sudden we're shining a light on that and so enter the opposition they'll rise up against and uh, david says you know hide me in verse eight hide me in the shadow of your wing keep me as the apple of your eye the apple of the eye is the pupil in other words gazing keep me in front of you looking at me in my life Lord, you know, it's nothing wrong with wanting to hide. Just hide yourself in the Lord. You know, don't hide in, in cowardice. Don't hide in, in your house or anything like that. But hide yourself in the Lord. Hide yourself in, in him and his great protection under the shadow of his wing. God can easily confound the plans of the wicked who seek to do you harm as if they can't even see or find you. We don't have a clue what opposition is around us. We think of maybe the guy that doesn't like us at work. If we knew the plots that the enemy had against us from all sides, from every possible warfare, we in our own minds would be crushed. God knows and sees all that, and he keeps at bay what he has to keep at bay. You wonder about the land of Israel when God brought the Israelites. How did, you know, it says that he would raise up a nation sometimes from far away to come and, and judge if, if he had to with the nation of Israel. They were always all around, 
ready at any given time to, to uh, you know, come and take him out. And this day, the nations surrounding Israel are ready to pounce. They're ready to attack. They're ready to take Israel out. They have no friends in the UN. And they recently lost a very good friend in the United States. And so they are alone. This is a good time as any to tell you that the days are short. It's not long yet before the Lord comes back because the timepiece of God's clock is the nation of Israel. And because of that and what's going on right now, we can know from Scripture that he's coming any day. You know, except for the fact that there are many who he still would like to see and who he desires to come to know him. Therefore, be ready. Just to be ready to, to share with anybody. And uh, so, who are these people that surround? Well, in verses 9 through 12, there's the list. They oppress. They're deadly. They're all around. They completely surround. They've closed their hearts up. They got, they're not going to find any mercy or compassion from them. Well, they speak proudly. And they surround us in our steps. In fact, everything they're watching us, you know how it is, and people at work or whatever, they're sitting there watching you like a hawk to make you see if you make one mistake. And, ah, see, yeah, I saw you. You know, you call yourself a Christian. Well, they do that. They set their eyes. And then they crouch down like a tiger, they, a lion e- eager to tear, just waiting to pounce, lurking in secret places. There's no way that we can see all these threats. But God, we can trust him. He sees it all. So with David, this is not a matter of opposing views. You know, oftentimes we find ourselves in a discussion or an argument. It's not a matter of opposing views. It's against people who are speaking proudly, and these are deadly enemies, enemies ready to pounce. These days, the world's calling for justice. They're calling from, you know, get, give us justice from their politicians and their courts and, and the social rulers or the social kings like Facebook and Twitter and Google and the news media and all that, completely biased against the Lord and anything that would shine light on, on sin. Um, censorship, you know, they're ready to pounce. There, there's coming a day just as there was throughout history. The United States has been a wonderful country to live in, but there's coming a day when the world is going to want to take us out because we stand for the God of, of the earth and uh, Almighty God. And sin is a part of that issue, which is why Jesus had to come and pay the price. They don't want to hear about their sin. And like Stephen, when Stephen was uh, testifying against the Jews that crucified the Lord, they gnashed their teeth. They were insane, gnashing their teeth, unable to control themselves, and picked up stones to stone Stephen. These are the ones that are around us. And, you know, it's slowly becoming a reality for our lives. And, uh, but we trust the Lord, right? He's going to save us. And so he says in verse 13, he says, Arise, O Lord, confront them, cast them down. He says, Deliver them with your sword. And he talks about the sword that could even be somebody, it's, it reads kind of interesting here because it reads like the sword that the Lord would be using might be from these guys that are in the world and he might use them to fight against each other. That's possibly what he's saying. But I think what he's saying, you know, with your hand from these men, save, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword and with your hand from these men, O Lord. What men? Well, the men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you filled with your hidden treasure and they are satisfied with children and leave the rest to their, of their possessions to their babes. They've got it made. For lack of time, I'm not going to read uh, Psalm 73, but 
in Psalm 73, Asaph writes how he was just grieved at how these guys are getting away with everything. They live to a ripe old age and they don't have any health issues and their kids are just taking it all and then they can continue to live on and there's just, where's the justice, Lord? Well, then he goes into the temple of the Lord and he realizes their end and he realizes that they will uh, meet their maker. There will be a judge and he rejoices in the fact that he can go in the temple and make his sacrifice and be uh, at peace with his God and, and know God. In Luke 16, Lazarus, with the rich man in torment, Abraham said, in, in your lifetime, you received good things to this rich man. In James 5, talking about the rich, he says, weep and howl. All your wealth is gone. Everything you stored up is gone. You defrauded your laborers, and God heard their cries. And in verse 5 it says, You have lived your life on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. In verse 15, As for me, I will seek your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. This is a reference to the resurrection. You know, it's funny that the scholars of Jesus' time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. I don't know how. I mean, here David plainly says, uh, you know, I will see you in your righteousness. You know, no man can see God's face and live. Moses talked with God as, as any man would talk with another man, but he never saw his face because you cannot see the face of God and live. Not in your sins. Now, Jesus came. We saw his face. He's the word made flesh. He was with God at the beginning in all creation. He's from all eternity. Jesus is God. And they saw his face. And uh, they testified, and we believe their testimony. And God's given us his Holy Spirit, and that bears witness as well. And it says, you know, he's speaking clearly of the resurrection. And, uh, you know, David knows he's going to see the God that he loves. I mean, if, can you imagine, like Paul says in Corinthians, for lack of time, but if there were no resurrection, what in the world are we doing here? <laughs> you know, go home, party, you know, have fun, do whatever you want to do, because what, what else is there? And so it's just plain common sense that all of this points to what was meant by God when he created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden and put the tree of life there put the knowledge of the tree of good and evil there. And yet, man sinned, man fell. Don't eat that tree of life because you'll stay like that. That's basically what it says. Don't let him come, put an angel at the gate. Do not let him come back and eat from that tree of life. They will live forever in the state of sin. And, that is, and that's why, to this day, we're living in this sinful world. And sin is what brings us to, our, to you know, sickness, and sin is what brings the wickedness and corruption that's around us that we have to deal with we're still living in a sinful world only we're a light in that world john first john three one and two is this hope that we have that should do it um first john three one and two behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. God, Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. And beloved, now that we are children of God, it has not been revealed what we shall be. But notice this. When, know that when he is revealed, 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Isn't that what David's saying right there? When I go, I'll see my Lord God, the one who I've loved, who I've walked with, who I've, I've trusted, who's taken care of me, who's built my life and established my, my, my throne, the king of, that, who Jesus established and sits at the right hand of the Father. You know, uh, this is who David's talking to. We just need to know our Lord. You know, there's no reason why uh, just getting into the word, spending time in prayer, being honest, down to your core with the Lord. And if you got a weakness, give it to him. Let him build strength in you and he will. Get into his word. And um, this is the hope that we have. Would not the God who made us and saved us and watches over us bring us to himself to abide with him forever? Amen. Let's pray. And Lord, we do love you for that. And we are so looking forward to that. And Lord, we do fall short and we do trust you and ask that you would continue to build us back up and set us straight and to cause us to walk with you. And Lord, we just pray that we could have peace that comes from just trusting in your grace and your mercy for our lives and not be anxious about anything. And whatever is coming down the pike for us, Lord, we know that you're far greater than that. And Lord, you said, what should we do uh, we shouldn't fear anybody who, who could kill us. We should fear you who can not only kill us but throw us into hell. But you know that you haven't done that with us. We're here. And Lord, we love you. And we're trusting in the work, the finished work of the cross. Lord, I just ask for anybody who would uh, not have been there, Lord, that you, you would just speak to their hearts. Uh, open up your word to their hearts. Cause it to burn within them. Give them someone to talk to. And Lord, that they would be able to put their trust in you. And so we lift that up to you as well. And for all those, again, Lord, who are not well and, and uh, who are, are ill, Lord, we pray you'd be giving grace and peace in their lives and allowing them to what they got to go through. And we just lift all us up in Jesus' name. Amen.